So basically, just to give you a bit of background, most of you know what this is, but um, every month I give an online seminar, a Paro seminar. I've been doing that for about two years now. And it's basically a chance for me to explore uh, my work in a more philosophical way. Because often when I'm doing talks, uh, they're introductory, and you're speaking for one or two or three hours, and then you move on, and then you have to kind of do the same introductory stuff. So these seminars are about uh, you know, trying to build something uh, over years. So if this is the first time you're listening to one of these seminars, it'll make sense, it's pretty introductory, but it's part of a wider kind of like set of seminars that I give through Patreon. So people, some of you are on my Patreon, you know that I do courses and talks on that. And then usually what I do is I release the, the, the lectures about six months later for everybody. Right? But sometimes whenever I'm traveling, I like to put something out on Twitter and see if there's any of my supporters or people out there who'll join me live and do something site specific. So that's why you're here. Somehow you find out about this. I put it on my Facebook page and on my Twitter. Um, and what I wanted to do with this one is because I'm in Belfast and I'm from East Belfast, uh, C.S. Lewis, as we know, was an East Belfast man, uh, at least for the first what, 14 years of his life. Um, I thought oh, it'd be interesting to not just do something on the philosophy that I, uh, power of theology, but also connect it in some way with C.S. Lewis. So that's what I want to do. And I want to look at an essay that he wrote uh, in 1941 called Bulverism, and he extended it in 1944, and it's in the book God uh, in the Dock. Thanks, God in the Dock, yeah, um, a kind of collection of essays. I say extended, all of C.S. Lewis's essays are tiny. If you ever read them, he's like the, the original blogger. He kind of wrote these very succinct kind of like essays. And Bulverism is a very sharp, very tight essay. And what I'd like to do is kind of look at the argument that he's using, but particularly look at C.S. Lewis as a philosopher. Because uh, not many people do that. They look at him as an apologist or as a, uh, uh, a writer of fiction, that kind of thing. But he actually was educated in philosophy and even taught philosophy briefly <coughs> at Oxford University. Uh, he'd read Hegel. Uh, he read uh, 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 George Berkeley, was one of his kind of favorite philosophers. And so I want to look a little bit at him as an idealist. So basically, C.S. Lewis went through about three major changes. He was a materialist in his youth, then he was an idealist, uh, then he became a theist, and from that a Christian. So those are basically his moves. Uh, materialism, uh, idealism, theism, Christianity. And the three of those, idealism, theism, and Christianity, are all interconnected. Right? So for him, idealism led naturally to theism, and then the theism led pretty naturally to Christianity. So it was only one big break was from materialism to idealism. Um, and just for definition's sake, uh, a materialist, you probably already know this, but a materialist is someone who believes that matter is predominant over mind. So the universe is primarily matter-based and mind arises out of matter. And an idealist is someone who believes that mind is predominant and out of mind, matter arises. And by mind, I don't mean my mind or your mind. Uh, I just basically mean logic, reason, right? So an idealist believes that reason is the foundation and the ground of all reality. And materiality arises out of that in some way. Even to the extent that with subjective idealism that material reality is an extension of the mind. Um, and then if you're a materialist, you believe that matter, come on in, grab a seat. This is Bessie, gave me great encouragement tonight because I said, I said like, I don't know how many people are supporting me in Belfast, how many people are gonna like come to this. And Bessie said, oh no, said, even good people find it hard to get people to come to things. <laughs> <laughs> Completely seriously, yeah, even good people find it difficult. Oh, Bessie, thank, thank you. you know, like, that was the kind of encouragement I needed. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I chose my words well, what can I say? What's that? I chose my words well. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, so a materialist basically says, out of matter arises mind. 
And that's basically it. And, um, you know, traditional theists are idealists, usually. And, uh, you know, if you're not a theist, you may be more prone to materialism, but it doesn't quite parse out that way. And by the way, on each side, the other, person, the other side thinks they're an idiot, right? If you find materialists, they think idealists are idiots. And if you find idealists, they think materialists are idiots. They're all idiots. No, none of them are. Both the positions are actually very smart and intelligent. And, um, and C.S. Lewis is, is an idealist. So this article starts off with C.S. Lewis saying that in the mid-20th century, he says there is a philosophy and a way of looking at the world that is basically ubiquitous. And it's the position in which people refute an argument because of contingent, non-rational sources. So they say that you would say that because you're a man, or because you're a woman, or because of your race, or because of your religion, because of your class, because you're jealous, because you're angry. So any rational argument is basically um, uh, refuted by your contingent position within reality. Your, your country, your race, your sex, your gender, anything like that. And you know, he's writing this in the kind of like 1960s, 1940s. So what would he think now with Twitter? <laughs> when social media where like everybody writes everybody off because of their position, like we've all encountered somebody writing you off because of your sex or gender or religion. You just think that because you're a Christian, you just think that because you're an atheist or a Muslim or Jewish or whatever. And C.S. Lewis, in a way he sees this as arising from the anti-philosophers. And the anti-philosophers are the philosophers he came after Hegel. So this is Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, Feuerbach, Kierkegaard. These, these philosophers who begin to question pure reason. And they begin to look at uh, how ideology functions. They begin to see that your place in society does influence how you see the world. Uh, whether you know, it's your, you've got mummy issues or daddy issues, or whether uh, you've got class issues, you're rich or you're poor, or will to power. Right? These thinkers begin to take seriously how reason can become rationality, uh, rationalization, sorry. It can become ideological. But Lewis doesn't blame them entirely. He doesn't think that Marx or Freud are, are totally responsible for this position. And in fact, he can't find any great thinker who is responsible for it, right? Because it's not a very reasonable position. <laughs> so he makes one up and he says, that if he ever felt inclined, he wanted to write a biography about this fictional character called uh, Ezekiel Bulver, right? And Ezekiel Bulver, says C.S. Lewis, when he was five years old, he heard his mum and his dad arguing. And his dad said, the two sides of a triangle, if you measure them, they will always be greater than the third side. And, uh, Ezekiel's mother said, you just think that because you're a man, right? And then bam, the lights went on and Ezekiel Bulver went, yes, every position is just related to whether you're a man or a woman or rich or poor or jealous or angry or anything like that. Every position is ultimately grounded in some non-rational or irrational perspective. And so that's Bulverism. And C.S. Lewis said, Bulverism is the philosophy of the mid-20th century. And it's kind of clever because it's definitely the philosophy of the, the, the 21st century, you know. Um, we're all bulverists. Um, so once he's established that, then he goes on to critique it. And you can probably guess the critique. Um, basically, he says that, well, Ezekiel Bulver, how does he justify his own position, right? Um, if all positions are simply the result of non-rational causes, your sex, your race, your gender, then how can you be a bulverist, right? Because that's a position you're taking about reality. You're trying to define something, you're trying to explain something. So he says basically the bulverist has two options. The first option is to just say that they're not making any rational claim. But then you don't have to listen to them. They're just howling at the moon, right? No reason to listen to them. Or the Bulver says, no, I am describing reality. 
our thinking is purely connected to our background. Uh, to maybe, you know, I don't like black dogs because a black dog bit me when I was a kid. There's always some sort of uh, non-rational reason for our beliefs. And then he says, well then, you can reject bulverism because bulverism would itself simply be a position that you take because of your non-rational kind of uh, contingent thrownness in the world. And so he says, you can't, you can't it, it doesn't hold. So that's all simple, right? That's easy, right? Um, but here's where it gets interesting. Um, and this is where C.S. Lewis is a bit of a philosopher. You start to see the philosophy coming out is he wants his reader to agree with him. And I think most reasonable people go, oh, yeah, okay, we should take seriously arguments and not just extinguish them because of the position of the person. Um, it's, there's a lot, it's a fallacy, it's a logical fallacy. But then C.S. Lewis says, well, if you agree with me, then you have to be an idealist. You can't be a materialist. Um, so this is kind of much more interesting from a philosophical perspective, right? Now, C.S. Lewis, all through his life, believed this. At first, he took the position that you could not be a consistent naturalist or materialist. Um, and then he changed his mind, he weakened the claim. He had a famous debate with Elizabeth Anscombe, one of the kind of great philosophers of our day. Um, and interestingly, I'm sure some of you know this, but basically, C.S. Lewis, um, he was the founder and the president of the Socratic Society, I think it was in Oxford. And uh, he wrote a chapter in his book Miracles called the, I think it was called the, the Self-Contradictory Nature of Naturalism. And Elizabeth Anscombe famously had a debate with him at the Socratic Society. And she tried to show him that naturalism is not inconsistent. So basically the argument was, if you're a naturalist, you're committed to the idea that uh, the universe arises from non-rational uh, source, right? So everything is just the result of cause and effect. Right the way to here, right now, today. It's just the result of random things smashing it against each other and increasing complexity. And so we now get to the point where we try to think about the world and we have a worldview <coughs> called naturalism. So we have a worldview called naturalism, but C.S. Lewis says, if you're a naturalist, then your worldview, your belief about naturalism is just the result of non-rational forces. So it's similar to what he's doing in this article, right? Um, so we try to say that if you're a naturalist, you can't rationally be a naturalist because you don't believe in rationality. Rationality is just this, this epiphenomenon. It's not a real thing. And anyway, and this is not what my talk's about, just giving you that, but Anscombe, who was even more conservative than C.S. Lewis, like she was this highly conservative Catholic with like nine kids or something. Uh, she didn't, that's not only she didn't believe in abortion, she didn't believe in contraception, right? She was hardcore. Um, but she was an incredibly strong woman who, um, you know, she turned up at a, a restaurant in Boston one time and um, she had a dress, or she had trousers on. And the restaurant said, ladies have to, they can't wear trousers to go into this restaurant. So she just took off her trousers. Right? So she, kind of, kind of, she, was she was mega conservative, uh, one of the best philosophers of her age. And, um, and she was arguing against C.S. Lewis. So it's kind of interesting. She was arguing defense of naturalism and materialism against C.S. Lewis. And then famously, C.S. Lewis lost the debate. Uh, depending on the, the, there's lots of different views on this, but he, he changed the chapter of the book uh, when it was released, re-released, he changed it from the, the, the self-contradiction of naturalism to the cardinal difficulty with naturalism, which means he kind of still thought naturalism didn't work, but he now realised, or he now believed it wasn't self-contradictory. Kind of, so that was, that was kind of move. But all through his life, he did feel that materialism um, did not do justice to reality in the same way that idealism did. And in this very short article, he kind of gives two reasons why. And they're kind of fascinating. This is what I love about philosophy, is when you hear them, they're so abstract and weird, but they kind of make sense, and it's kind of hard not to agree with them. And the first thing he says is, if you agree that bulverism is wrong, then you believe in reason, right? You believe in reason. Uh, 
and you're, you're embracing reason. And by the way, he says, you can't argue for reason. Reason is what you argue from, right? So as soon as you argue against reason, you're presupposing it. As soon as you argue for it, you're presupposing it. Reason is the rock upon which you stand. It's, it's not something that is illuminated by light. It's the light that, that enables you to see. So as soon as you engage in an argument, you are already presupposing reason. And you are presupposing that you are participating in reason. And at a very basic level, reason, um, Aristotle talked about, there's three things about reason that are universal. One is the law of non-contradiction. Something can't be A and not A at the same time. The law of excluded middle, which means um, something is either true or its negation is true. And the third is the law of identity. Something is what it is. Right? Those are these three basic laws that attributed to Aristotle. He said basically you can't get around them. Right? As soon as you reason, you just presuppose those. You're already embracing them. If you don't, you can't argue. You just fall apart. Right? So Lewis is saying that you, you, you argue, you're embracing reason. And then he says two things about reason, which are fascinating. He says, first one, he says, matter doesn't influence or move reason, but reason influences matter. So he says, reason is, 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 uh, has precedence over matter, because no matter how big an army you have, two plus two will always equal four. You can't move it, you can't move reason. You can't make two plus two equal five. You can't make reason, uh, you can't make two plus two equal 4.1 or 4.00001, right? You can't move it at all. You build a Death Star, you can't, okay, no, nothing will shift reason, reason. Now, I can mess with your mind, right? I can, you know, you can, as you get older or whatever, or you're, something happens, you get a brain injury, your thinking can be mess up. But, but reason doesn't. The law of non-contradiction still holds. Two plus two still equals four, even if you think it doesn't, right? But he says, but it's not the same the other way around. Reason influences matter. And, you know, he's thinking that uh, we are these animals on a rock in the middle of the universe. But when we get reason, when we develop language, we can start to manipulate our environment. Before that, we're just kind of part of our environment, but now we can manipulate it. Now we can create paintings and chairs and tables and technology. So reason is, you can see the influence of reason on everything we look at, but it's not the other way around. And then the second thing he says is, reason is necessary, matter is contingent. Everything you see, comes and goes out of existence. Everything that you experience is the result of something else and passes out, goes, comes into existence, passes out of existence. But things like two plus two equal four, they don't get old, it doesn't pass in and out of existence. It's somehow eternal. Like it's, it's like if you're 90 years old and you say two plus two equals four, it's just as brand new as if you say it when you're 20. There's no, there's no age to it, it's eternal. It's something that we participate in for a time, a small time in our lives, if our minds are working, and then we leave. But, but it's something beyond us that we briefly participate in. <coughs> so he basically says, he says, okay, so matter is contingent and reason is necessary, and matter moves and reason is unmoving, which is similar to what Augustine says about God. Right, the unmover, necessary being, that kind of thing. So this is what he thinks you're committed to. And it's, of course, it's a philosophical trick, because once he gets you committed to that, then he can then push you into theism, right? And then from there, he thinks you can push you into Christianity. So it's like, um, you can always get idealists to become theists, it's easy. It's because they already are without knowing it. It's kind of a weird move. Now, anybody got any questions or comments about that bit before we move on? Phil, you don't think you're smiling there? No, you're good so far. I'm going to critique this, by the way, right? But, but before I do it, I'm kind of letting it sit there. It's, it's this very clever... This is what philosophers do, is they get you to agree on something small, and then they shovel all this other stuff in with it that you kind of have to agree with. <laughs> so, I do have one question. Oh, yeah. So the laws, for example, use 2 plus 2 equals 4, that the laws 
be argued to emerge from a particular material universe. So they're eternal within the constructs of the universe that we have produced them from. So in other words, they still could be argued to emerge from matter, no? So are you saying that... There are no universe, there could also be no laws. Or you're saying there could be an alternative universe in which... Different laws. Different laws. Yeah, I mean, some people argue that, but it's like, so those are the three laws that we've mentioned. It's like, could there be a universe where the law of non-contradiction doesn't hold? I mean, it, it's so baffling to imagine it, but is it, is it possible? The funny thing, here's the, here's the interesting thing, right? So that, that's one approach, is to try to critique it from the outside. Because another thing I was thinking when I was reading it was, well, matter isn't, doesn't get destroyed. The whole, the law of the conservation of mass and energy means that actually matter, it doesn't, you know, it, it stays constant. But I think C.S. Lewis can get around that by saying that the very matter itself needs an explanation. But, so there might be ways to poke at it. Um, I think that argument, I've heard that argument made, some physicists make it, but it's very hard to get your head around it, you know. But you don't need to, because the other way of doing it is potentially to argue for its inconsistency by pushing it to its its nth degree. Exactly what C.S. Lewis did with Bulverism, where you reduce it to absurdity. There, there might be a way of critiquing C.S. Lewis here by adopting what he's saying and pushing it to the very end. And this is where I, this is what it gets interesting. This, by the way, is a difference I think between confessional Christianity and radical theology, which is my tradition. Um, in in confessional theology, um, there is this notion that the universe is an organic whole. There is balance and order and wholeness, um, and something has come in to disturb it. So there is some external disturbance. So it's also paganism, New Age philosophy. There's lo- you know there's lots of philosophies, you know, psychedelic enlightenment. They all go with this kind of idea. Right? Um, that the universe is this whole and something, whether it's an illusion, and more Eastern religions say there's an illusion that we are not at one, that we have to see through the illusion, or more Western traditions is there is actually an ontological event that takes place that we need to overcome. But it's basically the same kind of thing. And then in radical theology, there's the idea of no wholeness is a type of myth. There's actually an antagonism in reality itself. So we're going to go with this. Uh, Hegel wrote a book called The Phenomenology of Spirit. And in that book, he wrote a preface. And the preface is an argument that you can't write a preface for philosophy. So he writes this interesting preface to one of the greatest books in the history of philosophy. And the preface begins by saying you can't write a preface. And the reason why he says this is he says philosophy cannot be like cliff notes. You cannot just, you know, like, a, like an Instagram, you know, text thing. You can't write the answer down. Philosophy involves having to walk through reason, follow reason as far as it will go, go through every epoch of reason, every age, every problem that has historically been in philosophy. You kind of have to walk through it, start at the beginning and understand every step along the way. And he says, you, as you make this step, as you move along, he makes this incredible claim. And it sounds ridiculous. It's good. He says, eventually you will receive absolute knowledge. And his way of promising, Hegel's philosopher in 1600 says, I can give you absolute knowledge, which is brilliant. I can give you the mind of God. Right? This is what Hegel's claim, give you the mind of God. So and I'm going to try and articulate what he means by that. But he says, but as you walk through, eventually you get the insight. So what's the insight? Um, and this is a modest defense of Ezekiel Bulver, that actually maybe Ezekiel is not as dumb as we think he is. Uh, Hegel says that you have to, yes, take reason absolutely seriously. You have to take the laws of non-contradiction, excluded middle and uh, identity completely seriously. You can't think without it. You start there. And then what you do is you think as deeply as you can and see where you go. And the philosopher who did that best was Immanuel Kant, right? Immanuel Kant basically pushed reason as far as he could take it. 
And he eventually came to this really interesting place where he said that when you push reason to its absolute limits, it falls into contradiction. He calls them antinomies. And the antinomies are you get to at one side, the universe is eternal. At the other side, the universe uh, has a beginning. Or there is freedom. Or everything is determined. Or there is infinity. Or there is no infinity. These are just the various examples of like when he pushes reason, but like reason just goes into these antinomies, these contradictions, and Kant brilliantly then turns around and says what any reasonable person would say and goes, so reason cannot give us access to reality. And that's the noumenal. Kant says, his critique of pure reason is saying that reason cannot penetrate to the very essence of reality. We are condemned to not really ever get to the thing in itself, what he calls being itself. So then he says we have to limit ourselves to understanding, limit ourselves to the scientific method, limit ourselves to um, the phenomenal world, the world as it presents itself to us. And then he says that there are certain categories, certain, uh, certain filters through which reality comes to us. And he, we can understand those filters, and we can understand reality to some extent. We just never penetrate the noumenal realm, right? The thing in itself. It's kind of mysticism, right? So Kant is a form of mystic here, where he says there's a, there's a reality that we cannot directly experience. We can only experience it in its failure, and that's what he calls the sublime. The sublime is an experience in which you... The beautiful is when you experience something. You look at this, it's beautiful, right? But then the sublime is when some image or some event testifies to a reality that you cannot sensualize. Your mind can kind of like, you know, you can conceptualize it only negatively. That's the sublime. It's like this event, almost like, so you never encounter the noumenal, you just encounter it in its failure, in its failure to get it, right? And that's, that's the Kantian sublime. So that's Immanuel Kant. Um, now what Hegel does, which is brilliant, is Hegel comes along and he agrees with Kant with one exception. He says the antinomies of reason, these deadlocks and contradictions that we encounter within reason, are not um, a sign of the limits of our intelligence. Actually, it gives us a glimpse into the very nature of reality itself. It gives us a glimpse into, at the quantum level of reason, that non-rationality holds. That there is something at the very deepest level of reason where it collapses in on itself, where, it, where it's not at one with itself. And so he says Kant did more than he ever realised. He got, this is what Hegel means, absolute knowledge. Absolute knowledge is, is that reason is always encountering problems, right? In every epoch there's problems, and then you try to solve them. And as you solve the problems of an epoch, you don't get to a greater reconciliation. You just come to deeper problems and deeper, more irreconcilable problems. And you keep doing this. So basically, reason is just always moving forward, but not to some sort of resolution, but to deeper and deeper contradictions. And then Hegel says there's a certain point when you're going along this infinity of just moving, 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 and then you go, oh yeah, reality itself is contradictory. Reality itself is dialectic. It's not at one with itself. And reason is the attempt to cover over the fundamental non-rationality of reason itself. Now, this is all very abstract, but actually, I think you can see this in a multiple disciplines in the last 300 years. And I'll just mention a few of them. I'll come back to a couple. Freud, with psychoanalysis, he was the one who basically uh, intuited and began to systematically reflect on the idea that there is an antagonism about being a subject. And when you have a problem, sorry, I'm pointing at you, you all have problems. I'm looking at you, look at you. When we have a, when we have a symptom, you know, I have a symptom, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, clenching my teeth, right? A symptom is basically the 
One way of thinking of a symptom is it is a clash of, of opposing desires within you. So maybe you're clenching your teeth and you discover that you want to shout at your boss because the, your boss is an asshole, but also you don't want to get fired. So you want to keep your mouth shut. So you want to open your mouth and you want to keep your mouth shut and you're clenching your teeth. And at first maybe we think a gum guard will help or whatever and we do that, but that's, that's not addressing the issue. But maybe when we, we come to know, we go, oh yeah, I've got this, you know, this aggression. Or we're overly nice to our mum, right? We're overly nice, we're always so, so nice. And it's a weird kind of symptom of like over, over being overly sacrificial. You go, oh, maybe it's because there's two things. You love your mum and you hate her. And your hate is uh, hiding itself in, in being overly nice because you feel guilty or whatever, right? So symptoms of whatever kind of bad backs or outbursts of mind or whatever it is, at a very basic level in the psychoanalytic thing is a clash of opposing desires within your subjectivity. Now then, in often in therapy, psychotherapy uh, and counselling, the notion is you begin to resolve those. You begin to talk about it, you make it, uh, you know, you bring it to the light of day. If you're neurotic, eventually you begin to work your stuff out and you see your contradictions and you go off happily. But for Freud and Lacan after him, um, no, what happens is actually just deeper, you just deepen the symptoms. You find that that symptom about, you know, clenching your jaw is actually connected maybe to your childhood and your relationship with your mother or your father. It goes deeper. Suddenly, you kind of resolve one symptom, but it, it just brings you to a more intractable symptom. And eventually, you get to what he calls primary repression, but you get to the point of, oh, subjectivity is a contradiction. I can't get rid of contradiction. And what I have to do is reconcile myself in some way to the contradiction that is life. Uh, Phil, in your book, I don't know if you ever put the line in, but I always quote it, and I quote you for it, is that one of your characters says, you know, uh, nobody gets what they want, but some, would, but some people get, don't get what they want. But there's some better... There's say, different ways of not getting what you want. Yes, there's different ways of not getting what you want. There you go, it's brilliant. Yeah, no one gets what they want, but there's different ways of not getting what you want. There's better and worse ways of not getting what you want, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's better ways of feeling than others that wrecked. It says, so... That's a notion in psychoanalysis. Uh, but then take uh, Marxism in political economy. Marx, as a Hegelian, he is looking for the contradictions within the political economy. And if you read Capital, what you discover is, is Marx is just following a contradiction that gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper within, in, within political economy. So, for example, um, when he moves, he basically there's seven stages or modes of production in Marx. Was it uh, tribal, Asiatic, uh, feudal, no slavery, feudal, capitalism, socialism, and communism? Right there you go. And um, he says virtually nothing about communism, very little about socialism. But there's the modes. Of, those are different modes of production, and each of them is kind of resolving the contradictions of the previous one. But then the contradiction just deepens. So, for example, the move from slavery to feudalism. In slavery, you have some people who are in charge and they basically, through might, oppress another group, right? Just through might. Then in feudalism, uh, that kind of starts to get hidden and it gets hidden in ideology. So there's still lords and servants, but now there's a whole educational system and religious system to kind of like keep everything in place. And there's still might there in the background, but, but it's, it's ideological. And then in capitalism, um, everyone's equal under the law. We're all equal. But Marx says, but actually oppression's everywhere. Where is it? And he says it's in the commodity. But here's the interesting thing about, just one example from Marx, I won't do this with everybody, but. I think it's fascinating is what is Marx's issue with capitalism? And basically, it's this. Just in feudalism, you've got a market, right? You also have to give your 10% or whatever to the Lord, right? 10% of the church, whatever it is. But you're in a market economy of sorts. And Marx says in that market economy, everything always gets what it's worth. Everything gets its value. Now, of course, in reality, it doesn't. But Marx is not looking at things in reality, he's looking at ideals. That's what a science is, right? 
Newton says a body in motion stays in motion unless some force acts against it to slow it down, right? We don't see that in reality. That's an ideal, right? We don't see it in reality. So Marx is always looking at the system in its perfection, running at its best. So Marx never critiques capitalism for being immoral or bad or not running at its best. Like if we get rid of some bad CEOs, it'll work well. No, he looks at it at its best, right? So in feudalism, I go into the marketplace, I have cows, you have chickens. And we exchange. And by and large, the market works out how much a cow is worth in relation to chickens. And eventually money comes in as a universal equivalent, make it easier for us to, to uh, barter. Then a weird thing happens as feudalism grows and, and certain contradictions are there. But what happens is, in capitalism, one commodity comes into being that never gets its value. So it's a new commodity that's never existed before. Like there's proto versions of it, but there's one commodity that never gets what it's worth. Anybody? What's the one commodity that never gets what it's worth? Labour power. And it's not that it doesn't get what it's worth because the system's not working. It doesn't get what it's worth when the system is working. In other words, we all now in capitalism have stuff to buy and sell in the market. We're all equals. Everyone's equal. And I don't have much to sell, but I have my labour power to sell. I have my labour to sell. So I go into the market. The problem is that's the one commodity that never gets what it's worth. Because if I get paid 50 bucks a day, my labour power is worth 100. Right? I create surplus value. That's how businesses run. Right? If I got paid what it was worth, it wouldn't, the system wouldn't work. And so Marx says this is called surplus value. So now we have this contradiction within, within, within the political economy that creates this runaway thing where we create surplus value that's disconnected from actual products. So where I live in LA, I was outside this second-hand car dealership. I had 500 cars in it. They're all sitting there. They're sitting there. It's not, it's not efficient. There's lots of people need cars. These cars are just sitting there. It's value and product kind of start to separate. So what, basically what, what Marx is doing is he's always just looking for the contradictions. Gödel in mathematics comes along and he's like Kant, he's the Kant of mathematics. He says that, you look at a mathematical system, he says that either a mathematical system is modest and then it's consistent, or it tries to define reality, it tries to be totalizing, and he says then it falls into incompleteness, it falls into contradiction. So then Gödel said, so mathematics can't describe the language of reality because it falls into contradiction. But you go like, no, that's ex he's actually got an insight into reality. Or take Niles Bohr, uh, who Einstein is the one who begins to open the door to quantum mechanics, to superpositioning, wave particle duality. And yet again, like Einstein's like Kant and like Gödel, he says, hold on a second, God doesn't play dice. So we just don't have, we don't have this, the, the theory of everything that can explain the quantum world, right? And then Niels Bohr comes along and says, no, 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 you actually have. Like actually what you're discovering here is not ignorance, but you are discovering that there's something about the very nature of reality that does not cohere to the basic laws that we know in everyday life. This is a move from the lack of the secret, where we think that there's some noumenal secret out there that we lack that will explain everything, to the Hegelian secret of the lack, that there's an antagonism in reality that you can't grasp. Now the reason why I'm saying this, and it happens with Darwin in biology, evolution is an antagonism in biological reality. Um, I'm trying to think what other, but those, those are the main ones. There's Marx, Freud, Gödel, Niels Bohr, Darwin. These are all versions, I think, of what Hegel's talking about. And the reason why I'm saying all of this is that, that if you go with this, you go, yeah, you start with the idea of reason, you start with the idea that reason is consistent, and eventually you get to the quantum level of reason and it begins to fall apart. And the reason why Hegel says you can't do a preface to philosophy is because if you do a preface to philosophy, you give that conclusion and it's utterly insane. It doesn't work. You're Ezekiel Bulver. What you have to do 
just like in physics, you have to go through modern physics, you have to go through every step of physics to get to quantum mechanics. You have to go through every step of reason to get to the point in which reason begins to collapse. Now this is the difference between Hegel's Christianity and Lewis's Christianity. Because Hegel also is a Christian, right? And he's also an idealist. But Hegel's Christianity is this, he says that God is the thing that lacks a lack. God is ult ultimate reason, the luminal, all of that, that we pursue. And he says Christianity is the religion where we see that God is divided, where God says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hegel sees this as a central moment of Christianity. That's why he thinks it's such an important religion. It's because it says in Christianity, you see that the absolute is divided from itself which in philosophy is called absolute knowledge. It is, you, you basically, you try to pursue God because you feel a lack in yourself. I'm lacking, so I want to identify with the one who lacks the lack. I identify with the, the absolute. Then the absolute through kenosis becomes human. So that's the first kenosis. It's like, oh right, so God becomes human. And then the double kenosis is then when God incarnated experiences the loss of God. So then you're confronted with your own lack again through the lack of God. In other words, you symbolically identify with Christ. Christ experiences the loss of Christ, the, it's the, the, the split, and therefore you re-encounter that split within yourself. And then that is called the epoch of the Holy Ghost, the collective of the new believers who gather together around the lack, which is the Last Supper, right? You gather around the death of God, the loss of God. So, in philosophy, this is called absolute knowledge. In psychoanalysis, it's called the cure. And in Christianity, it's salvation. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. In a nutshell, um, that's what I wanted to see. To, to, to contrast Hegel and Lewis's notion of Christianity. Um, but yeah, so any questions or comments or disagreements? Why is John. my head hurt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 The, the reason, by the way, for the importance of this, for this head hurting thing, is, is that, can I, like, to, to talk about politics for a second, or whatever, any political system, right, that seeks organic unity, and that sees the world as an organic unity, right, it can only explain why it's not working by some external thing that's attacking it, right? So as soon as you believe in a, you know, there's an organic whole, the world works like a, like a body. And then you go, so why is there a disturbance in the body? Oh, it's because of X, right? Now, of course, zero sum is fascism, the figure of the Jew, right? The fascist says there's an organic system. I mean, Hitler in Mein Kampf talks about the organic all the time. There must be a hundred passages where he talks about the organic. And the, the figure of the Jew is the one who comes as a disease to disturb the organic whole. So in other words, there is an external problem that attacks. When you take this position, you go, okay, no, there's not some external problem that is attacking us. There, there's a symptom, there is, a, there is an inherent uh, antagonism to social reality that we can't get rid of we have to face, we have to turn it into something good, we have to do it. So you cannot scapegoat, scapegoating is the name for this, and say it's immigrants, or it's republicans, or it's atheists, or theists. Or, like as soon as you scapegoat a group that if only we got rid of them, everything would be good, you're falling for what Hegel would say, like it's, it's um, your misunderstanding that you can never get that, that's a fantasy, and that's a fantasy that creates scapegoating. In this position, the alternative is we have to find a way to see that. Well, it's the difference between Jordan Peterson and Slavio Shizek, if you saw that debate, right? Jordan Peterson is, there is an external problem attacking society, destabilizing it. And Shizek is, no, it's a symptom. There's something internal to Western civilization that's disturbing it. Does that make sense? So the right-wing deviation of the left is when the left, and this is what liberalism is, progressivism is, says that it takes on this idea that there's that there's an organic hole and we can fix it that's the that i think that's the right wing deviation of the left anyway sorry you didn't even ask that sorry i just wanted to say <laughs> any other questions or thoughts on what i'm talking about
I would ask people online, but they're not online yet. I have to look, look, look this after the fact. Usually, there's a. I've got my computer, and there's questions. So, Helen. The uh, the idea of the symptom is always a good reminder <coughs> that a symptom isn't an issue that has to that indicates kind of a disease within the system. You just have to fix it, and you'll get rid of the symptom. It is actually a reaction formation that is literally. I think we've said this, Sam Tom, like the. It's like the Jesus figure. I mean, it is like that's it. Yes. Well, yeah. So yeah. So you get from so in the can you get from the symptom, which is I've got a symptom. I've got a bad back. I've got an outburst of anger. I've got I can't sleep. Whatever it is, whatever your symptom is, to you and you start to take that apart. Start to and eventually what you get to what the can calls the symptom. So I say that. But you it might be. I guess it's like the difference between conventional. I don't know, Western therapy where you yeah. go, you discuss and you get rid of it and you're fine. Yes. But actually the point being, it's like, no, this is the, the this is like, level. this is the quantum level of what you get to. Yes. Which is, which is what the sand home is. The sand home is when you get to the point where you realize that you are a contradiction and you can't get past it, then the only trick is to enjoy your, your symptom, <laughs> which, is, which is the move yeah, you're, you're talking about, absolutely. And, 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 and the way this works then, what was I going to say? Well, does anybody else have a question? Because there was something that you, that sparked in my head, the sad home. Oh yeah, 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 here's, here's the, an issue politically, right? If our contemporary structure is based on this desire that if we purchase enough, if we have enough money, if we get enough of this or that, then everything will be great, then that always fails, that we, we never get anywhere. But here's the thing in psychoanalysis is it says that we're not enjoying that, right? So there's, we're, we're killing ourselves trying to get something that we can never get. But psychoanalysis goes like, well, you are enjoying it. We're just not enjoying our enjoyment. We get something, we always get something from the failure to get it, right? That's that one of the basic insights of Lacan is that, that there's, there's a real enjoyment in not getting something. And of course, you think about the kid at Christmas waiting for their Christmas present. Although they're wet themselves and having a temper tantrum, you see the pleasure. It's much more pleasurable than opening up the present. It's a bit boring and you move on. This not getting has so much in it. And for obsessives, they want what they can't have. So an obsessive man always wants a woman who's inaccessible or whatever. And an hysteric is often one who can only desire what they have if it's under threat of being taken away. Hence, they need jealousy. Hence, some people are not jealous because they love, but they love only because they're jealous, right? So these, these, these notions, and the point being, the, the Hegelian point here, is that if only we can enjoy our enjoyment, if only we can shift our focus, this is what absolute knowing is, you shift your focus so that you realize that not getting is where the enjoyment is. You libidinally disinvest from the contemporary political economy. I mean, I sound naive saying that, so, but I believe it. I believe, in fact, for me, Christianity is countercultural communities of that subtract their libidinal investment from the lost object. That's all Christianity is. It's the communities that subtract their libidinal investment from the, the lost object. And how do they do it? Through absolute knowledge. As in realizing that it's the struggle in life that, that is um, the not getting, the struggle is where it is. I mean, that's what Christianity is. Your Jesus is the thing we have to get rid of to get back to God. Crucify Christ to get back to God. You realize the obstacle is God, right? What, what you have to get rid of to get to the absolute is the absolute. Yeah, that's it. That's why you look at something like the office, the Ricky Gervais's office. Um, you know, it's 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 brilliant because right, Ricky Gervais and I forget what his name is, David Brent, and the, the, he's a he's a he's a tragic figure. He's an idiot. He's somebody dislikable, whatever. But in the story arc, at the very end, what happens? He well, he, he realizes he's a dick. Right, that's it. He doesn't stop being a dick, he just realizes he is. <laughs> and the moment that he realizes he is, we kind of like him. 
he suddenly there's no more. He can't go anywhere. The comedy's over. That's what's brilliant. Like it's finished, and it's like oh, and then and then he gets the girl a bit, brings this girl to the party, and he's still the same guy, but he has the realization. But the very realization is salvation. And that's why the gar gargoyles are the what do they call them? They're not called gargoyles. They're called grotesques. The grotesques on churches. We're, we're, this is a sitcom. We're all in a sitcom. The grotesques are laughing at us. That's why they're there in the church buildings. They're the audience that are laughing at us going around our life thinking that we can get things and be important. And the only way to escape the sitcom of life is to realise you're an asshole. And that <laughs> you can't get it. That's the only way to escape the sitcom. Mm -hmm. There was a quote in uh, the movie, Judy, there that I went and watched. And it was really, really good. Judy Garland. Oh, and the movie's called Judy. And she's on stage at her last sort of performance in London or whatever, and she's dead six months now. And she's sort of broke down in tears or whatever, and she says something along the lines of, you finally realise it's not the destination, um, it's just about trying to enjoy the walk, you know, or whatever That's it is. It. That's it. In a nutshell, I could have like if I'd said just that, we could have gone to the pub. I had to, I had to make it sound a bit more complicated, but that's it, you know, you know, without without making it twee. But that's it, that, and it's not twee because she went through so much to get to that insight. That's probably similar to Hegel's thing. If you can't, you don't get to it by putting the, the quote on a piece of wood from the ocean. You have to live it, you know. You get to it. Any other comments or questions before we stop? Oh, okay. So you mentioned like two things, reality is being sort of split from itself and then later on towards the end of your talk you mentioned God being split from itself or whatever. Yeah. Are those sort of similar in a way ideas or is it the same idea essentially like? I think so. I mean for Hegel, I think he sees them as the same. The reason why he liked Christianity is because he felt that well, he felt that most people can't, and truth is, virtually nobody can read Hegel, right? Even this says that even Hegel couldn't read Hegel, right? Um, so, so Hegel's point is, right, it's very hard to get to this through philosophy. And he said, but Christianity can give you the existential event of it. And, um, and for him, Christianity was this, this revealing of it in, in what he calls a cultic way, but cultic and not in a negative sense, but in a kind of like communal ritualistic way. But this is why I do parotheology, because I believe that most of us, we can get there philosophically and through psychoanalysis, but actually we also need a community in which we enact this event. So for Hegel it is, I mean for me as well, I think it's the same thing. That's what I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, based on that, then is, is it like a kind of, um like if we just knew reality in and of itself, like the game would be over. It's like we would then like have it, you know, so to speak. But it's like it's split from itself, so it invokes the kind of ongoing game, almost like hide and seek, kind of, you know, where now you see it, now you don't, kind of, yeah, like. Well, what are you saying? Because like in one way, if you go like, yeah, it's yeah. never ending. Like yeah. so even when you get to absolute knowledge, and the reason why I call it absolute knowledge is because he says there's nowhere, you're never going to overturn that insight. That's what he thinks. So even if there's a superior intelligence which visits us, they, they won't have got beyond this insight. Um, and he doesn't think that we've got there yet. He, doesn't, he, think, he thinks we've got to the point where we can just about glimpse it philosophically. But, but he says that, so reason will always keep going, that's an infinite, there's an infinity, there's, there's always the dialectic. But there's a point when we glimpse the inherent uh, deadlock of, of reality itself. And for him, politically, like we will not be saved, like we will go to destruction if we don't have this insight. Like there's a, what's it called? This firm's paradox or something. But by intelligent life, it's like why is there so little? Why is there no noise out there? Right? We would imagine that there'd be loads of noise from alien life, right? But we don't really hear very much of it. Even if they visited us, or whatever, we're not we're not inundated with noise. And so one of the theories is because interstellar travel is so difficult to get to that point that virtually no civilization has. Because first of all, you have to have like a, a planet with a stable environment. You have to have like, uh, uh, you know, no meteors hitting it, all of these things. But then it keeps going up. Every, every threshold that has to be passed, virtually you know, billions to one, billions to one, billions to one. And then 
the potentially, and this is, I, I, I think there's something to this, is potentially the one that we're facing, is that when you become self-conscious, you distance yourself from the environment, you enter into death drive, you um, have this pursuit, this frenetic pursuit, and so most civilizations destroy themselves before they get to the technological ability to leave the planet, right? And I think that's where we're at now, that if we don't have the insight of absolute knowledge, um, no, we're screwed, right? We're just, they, they, that this frenetic pursuit will just wipe us all out. Um, I think that's, that's kind of Hegel's insight if you kind of like boil it down to something very simple. <laughs> yeah. um, if, if you and Mills were in a debate, oh, yeah. what do you think you would disagree on the most fundamentally? Yeah, that's a good question. And of course I would win. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, this is like my main issue with Lewis in this paper is that Lewis didn't go far. Now he wouldn't say this, right? But um, there's a there's the old joke about like, this woman gets on the bus and says, I, "I need to go into Belfast. Can you tell me when what stop I need to get off?" And this guy says, "Oh, he says just easy, easy, easy. Say just watch me, right? And see the stop that I get off." He says, "Just get off the stop before that, right?" Um, <laughs> can't do it. But um, it's like I think Lewis gets off the stop before he should, right? That that Lewis doesn't go all the way to see the, the, uh, this rupture. So, so basically, Lewis is a standard confessional Christian. He thinks that, that reason um, holds, the laws of non-contradiction hold, all of that, and he's a simple idealist. And, where, and so where I would disagree with him is I would say that, yes, you've got to start there, um, but if you follow that right the way through, um, that idealism will deconstruct from within and then you get to radical theology and C.S. Lewis would not have liked radical theology at all. Um, but I don't know if that makes sense. I'm like, what would, like, so if he was standing right here, what would he say in response to what I've just said? Well, if William Crowley had been here, he was going to be here, he would have done the same thing. You're just going, this is all nonsense. <laughs> um, I don't know what he would say. I don't know. But did he... I mean, I actually knew nothing about Jesus, but did you not, you know, it's this absolute kind of like that there's some, something, some order behind reason. Yeah. Now, and, but, and, but yeah, he had some exceptions, like his notion of joy mm. is deeply um, insightful. Because mm. joy, for, for C.S. Lewis, joy is a pleasure in not getting something. So joy is in the room of heaven, right? You don't have heaven, but joy is this not suffering because you don't have heaven. It's an enjoyment of not having it, right? So when he writes surprised by joy, that's a very psychoanalytic idea, because in psychoanalysis you have enjoyment, which is the pleasure of not getting what you want, and you have pleasure, which is the pleasure of getting what you want. And enjoyment is where all the action is. So C.S. Lewis does have the, like he has these moments, that's why I like him, because I can not only disagree with him, but there's moments where he, I think he has insights that are better than him. But, um, but yeah, but ultimately, yes, he, um, he sees Christianity as, he sees the universe as, as, as a rational whole. And um, I think he misunderstands Christianity. I think it's like, I think basically, I think he mis I think he wasn't a theologian. He says it himself, I'm not a theologian. And um, yeah, he should have read more Hegel. <laughs> but yeah, that's a terrible answer. I'd like to, I, I'd be in, I did a whole f a conference on, on C.S. Lewis. I love, because I thought, we always do events around people we like. What would it be like to do a whole conference around someone I kind of disagree with? But not to disagree with them, but to let them judge me. So that's why then I read everything of Lewis, as all as non-fiction, but not to judge it, but to let it judge me. And that was a really, really good experience for me. So th like this paper, for example, is the result of sitting with Lewis and like really trying to deeply read him and uh, not trying to uh, not trying to dismiss him overly quickly. As in tonight, one hour ago? Is that <laughs> <you>? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it all about being in the dark cave and everything's murky and we don't have a clue? Yeah. And the idea is to eventually get outside into some sort of light and, and understand things that we don't care. But the bottom line is, is it not true that all these great minds, all they end up saying is, there is, there's just a contradiction. Where as soon as we push things, 
there's a limit and it all breaks down and we cannot understand. But isn't that logically, obviously should be the case? Because, so if we live in, if there's a fly here and it lives in our world, how's a fly going to comprehend things? How's it going to piece together and come to absolute knowledge yeah. of our world? Yeah. It's hardly, so we're clearly the fly that lives in God's world. So clearly, we're not going to understand this world. Yeah. Uh, just to quote the greatest philosopher that probably ever lived, yeah. <laughs> no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun, despite all their efforts to search it out. No one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. So, uh, yeah. presumably, he claimed to be the smartest person that ever lived, he said yeah. that we're not going to know. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely the most, like, a very common position, is that, that that's the kind of Kantian position. Like, Kant's the one who kind of, like, says that reason <coughs> ultimately can only show us that we cannot penetrate the numinal realm. So Kant is kind of, like, the, the greatest philosopher of that position, and uh, he, he basically does this very sophisticated argument that shows that we can understand the categories through which we understand the world, but we can't get access to the world. And that, that is also very much within a lot of confessional religion, mysticism, but certain forms of mysticism. Uh, what Hegel is claiming and the Hegelians is something different. They are saying that very gradually over 18 billion years, basically it's almost like, for, so from the, to simplify it dramatically, it's like the universe is straining to understand itself. And we are the universe seeing itself, we are the universe hearing itself, we are the universe speaking itself. And it's taken billions of years to get us to you know, this point. And that, that for Hegel, weirdly, the universe, and this is what the mind of God is, is the universe is very, very slowly going through, because that, that fly, yeah, it's going to take billions of years for that fly, not that fly, but for the evolutionary process, for that fly to become conscious and then self-conscious. Um, but self-consciousness is the point when the universe can begin to understand itself. So, that, so that's the difference between Kant and Hegel. Is, uh, uh, and so yeah, that's the, that's the question. But the thing about the contradiction is that, and that it is this nothingness and all that, but there is like an actual truth, and in psychoanalysis it's called a cure, because it does actually there is actually a truth and insight in it, which yeah. is, it gets us out of death drive. Yes, that, and, that's, yeah, and that's the argument that I'm making and you'll be making is that, that, that interestingly, that this insight is an insight into reality. And then in psychoanalysis, the, the truth is it fixes you. <laughs> the truth is you say that, that, that entering into this type of Hegelian perspective, you enter into a new mode of being and that new mode of being um, is a more... A bit less shit. What's that? A bit less shit. A bit less shit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, if you, if you put it, yeah, if you put it in like, th this is why I think for me, Christianity is not a belief system. It's about um, a different modality of being. So for example, if eternal life is just life until the end, right? Until never ending, that would be terrible. Heaven would be full of people screaming to die, right? <laughs> the mere continuation of life would be horrible. It has to be, a a change in the depth dimension of life, right? So it, 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 you have to, it's in, and that's, what, it's, that's a very conservative Christian idea that, that eternal life starts in a different modality of being, you know? Um, and so this notion is that if Hegel is right, and if Christianity, radical Christianity is right or whatever, psychoanalysis is right, then it will invite you into a mode of being that is in tune with reality itself which means in tune with the chaos of reality itself, the dialectic, the deadlock of reality itself. And that should uh, allow you to affirm life in a deeper, more beautiful way. Not be happier necessarily, but, but be able to affirm your existence, to live before you die. So the proof's in the pudding. Maybe. So you kind of don't let the contradiction rule you, as in? Yes, oh, that's well said. Yeah, you don't let the you, contradiction rule you. You, you are the contradiction. You are the contradiction. You become, you become what you are. That's it. You become, you, yeah. 
That's very well said. That's what salvation is for me. That's and that's that's what power of theology is about. It's about trying to save people. Um, you have to become a Christian, which simply means to me you you realize the contradiction of reality itself, and you enter into that contradiction. Um, the good news is life is shit, and you don't have the answer. You know that's good news. The, what's bad news is. You know, I, you, there is an answer and you can be happy. That's terrible news. That just makes you more unhappy and anxious. But, but if you can embrace the... And it's not that you don't have the answer, but the answer's out there. It's that, oh, that the answer is there is no answer. The, the secret is there is no secret. The secret of the lack. I enter into that. That's fantastic news. Can I can buy a private jet with that message? Probably not. <laughs> it's a sad thing. It's, oh, you always need more money preaching that you can be whole and complete. But I think... Um, if you can really help people enter into the gloriousness of incompleteness, uh, then something more beautiful arises. All right.